Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming. My name is Troy. Um, I'm one of the librarians, and I'm happy to introduce Josh Fulton, who's a faculty member in history. Um, a few years ago, five years ago, so mm -hmm. we had a panel discussion marking the hundredth uh, anniversary of the start of World War One. So we thought it would be, you know, only the right thing to do to commemorate the end. So we're now a hundred years since the ending of World War One, and I'm of an age where I can remember World War I veterans. Like I remember my great-grandfather, um, who I can barely remember when I was um, quite young, served in World War I. And so I think, with um, for many of you, just guessing by the audience, probably do not remember World War I veterans. So this war has slipped from a current event where people that we may have known were part of into a, a real piece of history where firsthand accounts are, are gone. And so I think it's important because this war is set up the 20th century, the things that came after it, um, conflicts and political maps and things that we still deal with today were set and put in place during this war. So it's important for us to not let that knowledge, that memory um, slip away, even though many of the participants um, are gone. So with that, I want to thank Josh for his time in doing this. Thank you all for being here. I will turn it over. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. Uh, I, I know that. Uh, you know, the First World War is sort of, as, uh, as Troy was saying, a sort of forgotten war. Uh, it falls uh, sort of before World War II. And it's interesting that you say that uh, you can remember World War I veterans because my primary connection when it comes to military service is through World War II veterans uh, and the many who were, were in my family and then later Vietnam and those types of conflicts. Uh, and so I think for many of us, it's those conflicts that are in our minds. It's not necessarily the First World War. And so to that end, uh, what I thought that we would do in being asked to talk a bit about the First World War, how it matters to the American story, how it matters to our legacy, uh, is to try to kind of hone it down into uh, a few points. Uh, so it might be a bit hokey uh, to uh, title something the legacies of the First World War in 14 points, uh, with apologies, of course, to President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, but I also think it's a good way to keep us on task. Uh, it's a transformative conflict not only for America, but for the rest of the wider world, even though we only really kind of come into it at the tail end. Uh, you know, we're, I, the way I like to think about it is good relief pitching, uh, of course, in a very, very, very difficult conflict at a very, 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 very difficult time. Uh, so what I thought that I would do is go through a number of these points, kind of talk them through, really, and then see what questions uh, folks have. I always think of history as a conversation. Uh, and so I, I think that would be you know, kind of a, a good idea. When it comes to the First World War, uh, again, it's a conflict where millions around the world lost their lives, but it's a conflict where many within the United States have a very little understanding, not only of how it affected us when it happened, but also how we thought about the war when it happened. Uh, because uh, we lose, yes, just over 100,000 individuals in the conflict, nearly over 10 million worldwide, although depending on what figures you read from Russia, you know, it differs a little bit. But again, it's a conflict where as it was ending, uh, there was a real feeling within America, at least for a short period of time, uh, that those who fought in this conflict, that those who participated in this conflict would be remembered and should be remembered. Uh, so 
the images that you actually see right here, uh, one is a propaganda poster from the time. Uh, so I think it's very telling uh, about how Americans thought about the war as it was occurring, right? So you see there the title Pershing's Crusaders, right? Really attempting to link uh, the effort that the American Expeditionary Force uh, was undertaking uh, to that sort of crusader ethos rightly or wrongly, uh, right, linking it to that crusader ethos. Uh, and when you see the image here to the right, again, this is just after the war has happened. Uh, this is an advertisement uh, from the Marshall Field Company uh, advertising to returning veterans, come buy our stuff uh, because uh, you are conquerors, we love these individuals, we love you, uh, you know, please come buy these things. Uh, and if you look a little bit at the imagery, it might be hard to tell here, uh, but you can see, of course, the returning soldiers. You can see the Crusader iconography. Uh, and if you can kind of tell, do you see the wagons up there at the top, uh, right? And that little bitty fort, uh, they're trying to link it uh, to America's frontier story. Uh, so it's a fascinating way, I think, that even as the war was ending, folks tried to be able to sort of say, this conflict is again a part of the American story and it's one that should be remembered. So, all right, legacies of the war, right? Legacies of the war. Uh, there's a great book by the historian David Reynolds uh, called The Long Shadow. Uh, and the quote that he has, I think, is very telling for us. Uh, so he writes this, for a nation that was economically precocious in the 1900s, yet deeply insecure about its social coherence, the bloodbath that swamped Europe between August 1914 and November 1918 could be seen as bizarrely reassuring, proof that American values were superior and must be the basis of a new world order. This ideology was articulated above all by President Wilson. Wilson's ideas were resurrected and reworked to wage the war of 1941 to 1945 and the Cold War that followed. Repackaged by 21st century neoconservatives, they also played a central role in the war on terror. So what, of course, he's referring to is that no matter your individual politics, how the United States has sought to relate with the wider world in the aftermath of the First World War is in many ways a product of our decision to engage in that conflict. Uh, so you know, whether or not you're somebody who thinks that we should be engaged, who thinks that we shouldn't be engaged, uh, you know, it in many ways is a product of this. So all right, let's get to some of these points. Point one. Why the war started and why the U.S. entered are still up for debate among some historians and in popular memory. Now, fairly famously, the First World War begins in the aftermath of the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, if you are completely unaware uh, of this individual, he was the Archduke of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, and his assassination, though haphazard, did work. Uh, and what ended up happening was that the many alliance systems, of course, that had existed in Europe uh, in the years prior to the war sort of came into position and ended up, you know, sort of bringing the war uh, to starting in August and September of 1914. It's one of those interesting assassinations where the individual who, of course, commits the horrible act, he's caught, he ends up spending most of the First World War in a prison uh, and dies a little bit later. Uh, and interestingly enough, to this day, he is heralded by some in Europe, right? So 
Assassins don't tend to get statues, right? Uh, but he has one. Uh, so I think it's an interesting commentary about European culture, European politics, and certainly European values. In the decades after the war was over, the American entry into it was questioned by American politicians of both sides. What you ended up with actually in the 1930s, during the midst of the Great Depression, was something called the Nye Committee, which saw at least part of its brief as investigating why America got involved in the war in the first place. There was a real feeling amongst some in America that we really hadn't gotten in because of a sort of Pearl Harbor type incident, that we had gotten in because American bankers and financiers had lended a great deal of money to the English as well as to the French. And so that we needed to be able to kind of back up our claims, uh, you know, sort of provide assistance and make good on this. And so that's why we did it. Uh, now, that's one of the reasons why the Nye Committee is involved here. But again, it's a sign of America's growing sense of isolationism, America's questioning its position in the world uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and again, there are others. So 1960s, 1970s, a couple decades after the Second World War, Fritz Fischer and a number of other historians uh, started writing on the idea of German war aims, right? So why had the Germans agreed to fight so hard uh, in the First World War? You know, were they doing this because they were aggressive or they wanted to be able to sort of take over the entirety of Europe? Now, whether or not you're somebody who's a big fan of the European Union, you know, that could be up for a whole other political debate. But that Fisher question over the nature of German identity, right, and its relationship to war, I think is an interesting one. Another part of this point is this idea of memory and the culture of 1914. A lot of scholarship since the 1980s has really looked at what was it like to be in a European city uh, when the news of the assassination of Ferdinand and the mobilization of armies to go to war happened? Partly because uh, when Hitler takes power in Germany in the early 1930s, one of the things that he says he wants to do, right, is take Germany back to that period of sort of great unity as he saw it when Germany went to war. Uh, so trying to get a sense of was Europe really as unified as Hitler kind of made it out to be? In some cases, yes, right? In some cases, no, not so much. Now, uh, I just told this story uh, the other day to a number of the individuals here, uh, but again, when it comes to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, uh, you know, there are many assassins who've positioned themselves along streets in Sarajevo. One of them, of course, uh, throws a hand grenade, thinks that he's committed the action, takes a cyanide capsule, jumps in a river. Of course, the problem being he hasn't taken enough cyanide to actually kill himself, uh, and he's not in a river that's deep enough to actually drown himself. Uh, so he's basically just sitting there. Yeah, he's sitting there projectile vomiting, basically waiting for the police to come and get him. So, you know, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. Uh, now, on the way back, of course, uh, there's a wrong turn, uh, and what happens, of course, is that Gavrilo Princip fires into the car and kills both Ferdinand and his wife, the Countess uh, Sophie Chotek. Uh, now, what I was mentioning earlier uh, about the idea of a Princip statue, so again, you have to consider that question of nationalism, terrorism, what do we look at as insurgency, right? What is acceptable, what's not acceptable, right? To some, he's heralded as an individual who stands up for national rights. On the other side of it, right? What did he start? Uh, you know, so it's it's a really conflicted identity uh, when it comes to somebody like Gavrilo Princip. All right, point number two: 
Trench warfare and its horrors reshaped our understanding of infantry war, paving the way during the war for a tactical revolution and technological and doctrinal ones that continue till today. So beginning in August and September of 1914, what you ended up seeing, at least on the Western Front, were these mobile armies that come into these clashes, such as at the Battle of the Marne, uh, that when the front eventually stabilizes and trenches are eventually built, those trenches don't move more than a few miles for the entirety of the war. Right? It's only until late 1918, when the war is coming to an end, that you start to see some sort of movement along those lines. So much of what you ended up seeing during the First World War was not only the brutality of that trench warfare and no man's land as we know it, but also of military innovations to be able to break that stalemate, to be able to break uh, you know, that ability to be able to you know, not move in any way, shape, or form. Now, many of the different implements that I'm sort of mentioning here, you know, some of this was already being developed beforehand, but the incentive of the stalemate of the First World War is a pretty strong incentive. Right? So the use of machine guns to be able to try to break the stalemate of this, the use of tanks to try to be able to break the stalemate of things like Verdun uh, or the Battle of the Somme, uh, and of course the use of planes uh, to be able to engage in war, combined arms war, as infantry support or in some cases operating as bombers independently. If you were an American soldier uh, and you went to France in 1917 and early 1918, you know, you would experience the trenches, right? This is what you would primarily experience. Uh, these very long, very deep trenches that by 1917, early 1918, were part of these very, very intricate defensive networks built up over a few years, uh, right? So there was a phrase trench foot uh, during that particular time, of course, because the boots these guys had, of course, were not exactly very useful to being that wet for that amount of time. Uh, it was a very difficult thing to be here uh, and to be in these trenches. If you look at some of the different tools that are being used by armies by the tail end of the war, so here's an example of a kind of tank that would emerge from the war. If you look at it, it looks a little different uh, than some of the tanks that you might see, let's say, for example, in the United States military today, right? The M1A1 Abrams doesn't look like that. Uh, now, this is much longer, right? Uh, and so you can kind of see what is that intended to be able to do, right? Go over some of those intricate trench networks, right? To be able to traverse those in open battle. But you also didn't want uh, to announce to the wider public that this is the kind of thing that you were working on. Uh, so of course, these would have been relatively secret uh, during this particular time. Now, a conflict as big as the First World War, the Great War, uh, is of course significant for many legacies, not just aspects of the battlefield itself. Point number three, the eventual brutality of the war left the victors and the vanquished unable to grapple with a horrible influenza pandemic, though it did it, its efforts to coordinate public health that are commonplace today. So, I know that there are many discussions in the news over things like vaccines, right? Uh, vaccinations, right? What's acceptable, what's not acceptable? Public health, right? All of these different types of things. One of the primary reasons why the First World War, particularly in the United States, is so ultimately forgotten is because what happens immediately after it, right? You have the Spanish flu, right? Now, the Spanish flu itself is to a certain extent forgotten. For one thing, it doesn't come from Spain, right? Anybody here ever heard it referred to, though, as the Spanish flu, 
right? Spanish flu, right? It doesn't come from Spain, right? Spain isn't particularly involved in the First World War, uh, so what you end up having, right, is no censorship for the Spanish press. So what are the rest of the Europeans reading about Spain in 1918? Uh, is that the king has the flu and all these other individuals have the flu. So there's this assumption that this flu is coming from Spain. Now, I'm assuming that most folks here have had the flu at some point in time, and it's a difficult thing sometimes to get through, right? It kind of knocks you down for a couple of days. Usually you take some stuff, you're gonna be okay, right? This particular kind of flu could and did kill young and healthy individuals within 12 to 24 hours. Uh, so I, I can't really go through all the pathology of it, uh, but by the time uh, you would, of course, uh, pass away, uh, you, your lungs had basically filled up with fluid, you sort of hacked yourself to death, and you would turn blue and purple, and it was, it was really quite terrible. Now, as this arrives in America, there are three separate phases of it. One at the tail end of the First World War, which as you can imagine was a particularly difficult circumstance to endure given the fact that during the midst of a war, you can't really stop going places, right? You kind of have to keep moving around, uh, especially if you have orders to do so. Uh, and so what ends up happening then is that folks are bringing this all over, right? They're spreading this particular illness. Uh, and what comes of that is a death rate that is absolutely massive and one that we don't do a very good job of appreciating even today. Partly because even though the First World War doesn't get enough credit, the Spanish flu doesn't even get any credit really. So in the US, the figures vary. So between 600 and 750,000 individuals die as a result of the Spanish flu or the influenza pandemic. There are a number of estimates when it comes to this particular malady globally. So years ago they would say 20 to 25 million more recently the estimate is around 50 million there are some scholars that also estimate that it's nearly a hundred million individuals who were killed uh, so it is a particularly terrible thing just to put that in perspective if it's if it ultimately was a hundred million right that's more than World War II that's more than the Black Death right all of those different types of things it is far 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 more Vaccines were to a certain extent in their infancy with this. There wasn't a genuine, perhaps, appreciation of the value of what they could offer. Uh, there was a lack of a coordination of public health officials and activities to be able to truly understand how something like this would spread. Uh, and also, remember, this is a time when there's an assumption that folks from, let's say, certain countries might be carrying certain things. Uh, and so public health officials were also connected, certainly, to the role of eugenics at the period, right? So I put this image up because I thought it would be a good one for us to see. You can see the, the health professionals there wearing the masks, right? This was a commonly done thing. There was this belief that if you wore a mask, you'd be fine. That's all you needed to do. Uh, the only problem, of course, being folks would shut themselves up in their houses. They'd go outside. What would they do? They'd take the mask off and breathe all over each other, uh, thus spreading the flu. All right. Point number four, the Treaty of Versailles that ended the war directly set the world on a path to future conflict and World War II was the result, right? Why we're talking about this uh, when it comes to this anniversary today is that 1919, in addition to being an anniversary for so many things, is the anniversary for when the Treaty of Versailles was signed. Now, this is, of course, one of the most problematic uh, diplomatic pieces in the course of human history because of the many components that it contained. One of them was uh, the war guilt clause, where the Germans had to admit that they were singularly at fault 
for the conduct of this particular war. Now, they, of course, strongly disagreed, uh, but they were really in no position to be able to make an argument here. They were forced to pay billions in reparations, uh, which they, of course, could not do, given that their economy was a shambles at this particular time. Many of their colonial territories, they are going to be forced to relinquish. Uh, so the idea of Germany as imperial or colonial empire is on the decline as a result of this. Their army is going to be declined down to about 100,000 individuals. Uh, and their economy for a short period of time is going to be occupied by allied military forces. Uh, so it's a very, very, very difficult post-war period for Germany. Some of you maybe uh, had a class at some point where you've seen images of Germany in the 1920s, uh, where their, uh, their money uh, is put into bundles and is used by folks to do just about anything, right? The inflation that hits Weimar Germany in the 1920s, uh, you know, of course, again, is one of the most difficult economic times that the world has ever seen. Another example of this would be something like how folks experienced battle, all right? So when the war is over, you've got millions and millions of soldiers who endured a military experience unlike anything that they had ever seen in the course of human history. The last time a conflict in Europe had been this destructive was the Thirty Years' War back in the mid-1600s. All right, so just to give you an example, uh, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the worst day in British history, all right, for a week before this particular day started, the British military, along with their allies, shelled German positions with a million shells. All right? They shelled them with a million shells. That's a lot of ordnance. Right? That's a lot of ordnance to endure. And what you end up seeing is 120,000 troops go over the line, and half are killed and wounded in a few hours. All right? Half are killed or wounded in a few hours. So what was referred to at the time as shell shock, what we might today call post-traumatic stress or PTSD, Right, was something that was just only starting to be acknowledged by some, but of course not by all. The assumption by many older generations in the teens and 20s, especially in places like Germany, was that those who struggled with this were to a certain extent failures, uh, national failures. And so what you ended up having was a disconnect between those who wanted to be able to support veterans who struggled with this and those who argued that those individuals were not, let's say, for example, truly German. And so the National Socialists, the Nazis, right, in the mid-1920s, they try to make this argument to the German people that the ideal German soldier or the ideal Nazi soldier could not struggle with this kind of a thing, would not struggle with this kind of a thing. And so what you end up seeing then is a disconnect that takes us through the Second World War itself. Now, another component that comes out of the Treaty of Versailles was that Japan, of course, had been an active part of assisting the Allies. So when the war is over, they want a seat at the table. They're basically denied one. Uh, and what you end up seeing then is a sense of international shame uh, that contributes to an aggressiveness that ends up in the war itself. So here, of course, is an image uh, of the Treaty of Versailles a Hall of Mirrors, where part of this took place. Uh, and here, of course, is an image of the morning of December 7th. Now, the fifth point. Upheaval and political revolutions were commonplace in the aftermath of the war, and the conflict led to the Russian Revolution in 1917 and the eventual creation of the USSR. So when scholars of the 19th century write and talk about the 19th century, they typically refer to it as the long 19th century, right? It begins in 1789 because that's the year of the French Revolution starting, and it ends for them in 1914. 
What they're, one of the many things they're referring to is that for most European actors in the First World War, the systems of government that were in power when they went to war had been in place for centuries, right? And had these long-standing connections back to earlier eras of European history. This war is transformative because it destroys a great deal of that. Right? The czar, the concept of the czar had been in power in, uh, in Russia for quite a great deal of time. Right? During the midst of this war, you see the beginnings of the Russian Revolution in 1917. Now it's the Civil War in the early 1920s where you're going to eventually see the emergence of, of Mr. Stalin and his mustache. Right? Uh, but it is with all of these other powers that you are going to see the emergence of new actors. Right? So in Italy, you're going to see the rise of Benito Mussolini in the early to mid-1920s. It is in Germany, of course, that you're going to see the rise of Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists. If anything, right, it stands as an interesting testament to that sort of interwar period in terms of what each nation sought to do, right? Because when the Great Depression hits the world, right, so the U.S. is of course affected, but many other nations are, right? It's that question of what do they do, what do we do, how do they process it, how do we process it, right? About a quarter to a third of Americans are out of work, but if you look at those who are underemployed also, right, uh, so the folks who have a job but maybe not in the field that they're trained for, the figure is much higher, right, in the U.S. It's something near 50 or 60 percent, right? The, the Great Depression period was a really difficult time, right? But we, we elect uh, a, a Democrat, right? We vote for somebody within our, our system, right? So it's that question of what are we looking to do, what are they looking to do? But particularly for many of these European nations, it's throwing off these systems of institutional power and going with more radicalized themes, uh, you know, certainly like fascism. Uh, so there we see Mr. Stalin with some of his uh, associates. All right, point number six. Although colonial forces were used widely uh, by colonial empires to quote-unquote beat the Hun, the war, Wilson's ideology, and Versailles eventually spurred anti-colonialism globally in a process that defined much of the developing world as the Cold War ramped up. When Woodrow Wilson came to Versailles, when he came to France, uh, he came with what were referred to, of course, as the 14 points. Uh, his platform uh, for being able to fix the world and uh, sort of promote American ideology worldwide. Uh, one of these uh, was a platform plank that included what he called self-determination for all peoples. Now, the right of self-determination for all peoples, the idea that all people should be able to determine their own destiny, right, to be able to vote, uh, to elect their leaders, to be able to control their own nations, right, that's a, that's a powerful thing, it's a radical thing, it's an important thing. But you've got to consider the time period. It's 1918, right? So, yeah, the Americans are allied with the Brits, and we're on the victorious side of this conflict. But how many areas of the world did the British control in 1918? It's a whole heck of a lot of it. So they might look at this and go, that's, that's nice, Woodrow, you know, real nice. But they're not necessarily going to go for it. But this is one of those things that led many others to feel inspired by America's story, right? This is what the U.S. is saying, right? We will support your drive towards freedom. Uh, and that is something that many individuals across the world are drawn to, 
right? So certainly you have an individual who comes to be known as Ho Chi Minh showing up at Versailles, looking to be able to meet with President Wilson. He doesn't, uh, but he feels, uh, of course, uh, that this could, could be something. Uh, Wilson certainly leads to what's called the League of Nations, uh, which is established. When the Ottoman Empire is broken up, what you see is the creation of something called the Mandate System here, where some of that is given out. And what you end up seeing again uh, as a legacy of this conflict is this idea of the ending of colonization, right? The colonization itself no longer really has a good place for this, and it should come to an end. So certainly that'll occur in India in 1947, and in, in the, the separation and everything, the partition. Uh, and certainly within the, the UK, right? Ireland and its story would be a good example of this. Uh, so during the war, you have what's called the Easter Rising in 1916. You eventually, of course, have the Civil War, the creation of the Irish Free State, uh, and the conflicts that last through the Troubles and all the way up through the Good Friday Accords. Uh, so there's quite a lot uh, that is contained in this. Now, Ho Chi Minh, of course, and his support or his desire to be able to achieve support uh, for the Indo-Chinese people, for the Vietnamese people, uh, again, it's rebuffed uh, at that particular time. Uh, and so what you end up seeing, right, is the return of French colonialism and the eventual, throughout the 1940s and early 50s, development of this from a, a war with the French to eventually a war with the United States. Uh, so certainly I would be remiss if I didn't sort of say that I have a family connection to that, right? So my dad was uh, in, in the Vietnam War in 1970. All right. Point number seven. Uh, global, not just regional activism in U.S. foreign policy was a significant outcome of the war due to Wilson's ideology, predating Truman, but echoed by U.S. Cold War efforts. We tend to, in politics, right, have this sort of back and forth view. Some like to support real activism in public affairs. Others do not, right? And it, it's interesting sort of how we kind of negotiated that in the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, so you had many who wanted to turn inward. Certainly the Nye Committee is an example of this. In the early 1930s, there was also fairly prominently something known as the America First Committee. Uh, so again, the idea was that the United States needed to disengage from global affairs. Uh, now, what you also had with this uh, throughout the 1930s was the relative aggressiveness uh, of, of Germany led by Hitler uh, that later this is referred to, of course, as appeasement, where the, the English and the French, to a certain extent, give Hitler what he wants throughout this particular period. The aftermath of the Second World War then, right, results in the containment policies that really define the United States in conflicts like the Vietnam War uh, and certainly the Korean War before it. So again, American engagement or lack thereof, right? So here's an example. Uh, so these are US soldiers in Vladivostok uh, in Russia, uh, fighting in 1919, 1920, uh, as a part of that civil war that occurred, right? So again, an interesting statement uh, in terms of what we're involved in, what we shouldn't be involved in. The 1920s is an interesting time when it comes to American engagement in global affairs, right? Because you have U.S. soldiers fighting in Haiti, you have U.S. soldiers fighting in Russia, but you also have marginal U.S. support again for this idea of America first uh, and this idea of isolationism. So it's an interesting thing and it's one we obviously still debate to this day. All right, point number eight, how the U.S. defined itself to its citizens during the war left a legacy that created tools of state bureaucracy, democratization, and madmen. So when America went to war in 1917, it did so with a state 
that was in many ways a reflection of the state uh, that had been formed over the course of the two to three decades beforehand. So some of you may be familiar with that phrase progressivism uh, and that idea of activism in governmental affairs, right? So by the time you get to the 19-teens, the United States has a generation or so worth of progressives, for lack of a better phrase, uh, you know, sort of in government and operating, you know, sort of through all levels of, of, of U.S. governmental society. What you end up then seeing is a nation on a war footing that reflects that, right? So when the war begins, spring of 1917, uh, the United States government passes what's called the Selective Service Act uh, to create the draft. Now, the draft had already existed in the United States. The first one was in the Confederate States and then the, uh, the Union, right? The United States had a draft in 1863. But this was a draft that if you've ever seen the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio film, Gangs of New York, that not everybody liked. Uh, there were draft riots, uh, and you could get out of military service here if you hired a substitute or paid somebody to go serve on your behalf. Uh, not anymore. Uh, and so by creating what was called the selective service, the desire was to be able to create a, a system whereby folks felt privileged to a certain extent, they felt happy to a certain extent about serving, so that you wouldn't have riots anymore. Uh, so you would get a little draft card that said, you know, congratulations, you've been selected amongst the many fine men of your community, right? Sort of this is the way that this kind of thing operated. Now, what I think is interesting, though, about this is that the overwhelming majority of those who ended up serving in the American military in 1917 and 18 did so as draftees. Uh, it's something like three quarters uh, of the United States military was drafted during the First World War. I think, if anything, it reflects that question of how we think about this war. Is this a war that we look back on favorably? Is this a war that we look back on negatively? I know that Troy mentioned earlier his family connection to the war. You know, I'll admit, my real connection to World War I when I was very young uh, was watching the old Gary Cooper movie, Sergeant York, uh, which was an old sort of mid-20th century film, a post-war film, uh, that was intended to sort of spark patriotism and sort of reflect the American ideal and soldiers from World War I. Cooper was a conscientious, uh, pardon me, York was a conscientious objector uh, who eventually wins the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, so there was this sort of way that folks were, that Hollywood was trying to sort of spin this uh, to again sort of show uh, sort of this activism towards service, which I find a very interesting thing given the reality of how this war ended up shaking out. Now again, when this war gets going, you do have many who flock eventually to service. But there was this real sense on the part of the United States federal government that maybe not everybody would do their bit, that maybe not everyone would do what was necessary uh, to be able to support the president, to be able to support the government, and to be able to support the country in this war. Uh, so you saw a president speaking openly uh, about volunteerism uh, and vigilantism. Uh, you saw within American culture an opposition uh, to those who were from nations that we were fighting. Uh, and you saw organizations sprout up to be able to sell the war to the American people. So I listed two of them here because I think they're very, very, very interesting and we don't acknowledge them enough. Uh, one of them is called the American Protective League, and the other is called the Committee of Public Information. Now, the Committee of Public Information is perhaps uh, the one that if folks are familiar with any of this, this is the one that they might know. The Committee of Public Information was founded in Chicago.
ago. It was run by a guy named George Creel. Uh, and it was really a sort of way that the federal government sought to be able to disseminate information about the war to the American public. Right? So when I was in college, for example, the Iraq war was starting. Uh, and the whole concept of embedding journalists with units right, was something that if you watched uh, the initial invasion of Iraq in the spring of 2003, you, know, you were fascinated by. Right? Sort of, oh my goodness, this is very interesting. It's a different story in 1917, 1918. So the idea with this, again, is that Creel's going to get the information from reporters. It's going to be screened. It's going to be censored by these individuals. And then from Creel, it's going to be disseminated throughout the entirety of the United States using the platforms of media of the day uh, to be able to, again, project the American story. And so you have to consider, right, while we might use viral videos, we might use memes, we might use social media, right, 1917, 1918, it's posters, it's speeches, okay? Uh, so, for example, the Committee on Public Information had a, a group of individuals that were known as the, the four-minute men. Uh, and so their job uh, was to go to organizations that would allow them to come in and speak, uh, and they would give what were called four-minute speeches about an aspect of the war effort that was typically dictated to them by the Committee on Public Information. Now they would come out in weekly or bi-weekly circulars uh, and you were allowed to kind of make some of it your own but most of this really was something that was again dictated by the CPI uh, and they of course welcomed individuals who were speakers from a wide variety of cultural backgrounds because the idea again was you want to make things go as viral as possible so uh, if you can have folks go into uh, an organization where English is not the, the the primary language but that person has language skills send them there uh, to be able to speak now there are some different sort of definitions as to why this is referred to as uh, the four-minute men. Now, part of that has to do with changing over uh, the new, the um, silent film reels took around that amount of time to be able to do this. Uh, and so somebody would, of course, change it over, you get up and speak, then that person would come down. Now, that's kind of the above-board part of it. The other part of it is what's called the American Protective League. So again, the Committee of, of Public Information, again, is an arm of the federal government during World War I. Uh, the American Protective League uh, was an offshoot of the Justice Department during World War I, uh, and it was founded in the city of Chicago. Uh, and there's about a quarter million members all around the country. Now, eventually, during the First World War, you are going to see the passage of a, a Sedition Act, which makes speech against uh, the American sort of support and story for the war illegal. Uh, and so what the American Protective League saw its role as doing, or saw its role as, was as sort of plain-clothed supporters of the American war effort. Uh, and so what they would do is they would go around to different organizations. They might stop young men in the streets, check and see if they've got their draft papers, uh, and they would engage in what they called slacker raids. Uh, they might go around during different bond and loan, liberty loan initiatives, right? So this was raising money for the war. This was called liberty loans. They would go around to communities and see if you were purchasing enough liberty loans, right? See if you were buying enough bonds. So again, armed men showing up at your door saying, have you bought your bonds yet, right? So it's a very interesting statement about what folks were defining participation in the war as being during this particular time. 
again, the American Protective League was a fairly prominent organization. Uh, the slacker raids that they conducted were all over the country. One of the largest slacker raids that are, is actually done is in the city of Chicago. Uh, Navy Pier uh, at the time was actually used uh, as a place to house some of these individuals. Uh, and so again, it reflected sort of this broader aspect of vigilantism. It reflected this broader aspect of anti-Germanism, which existed in the country at the time. So, you know, again, I think we tend to marginalize that. I think we tend to forget it. Uh, I think we tend to look at this particular image and go, oh, okay, we get it now. Uh, but I think things like the American Protective League bring up real questions about dissent in wartime, the role of the state, what is okay and what is not okay. Uh, and are real interesting things for us to, to be discussing and for us to be able to, to ask. All right, point number nine. The national identity crisis in the United States during the war was mirrored in Illinois and the Chicago area, where efforts at volunteerism resulted in a constructed ideal of what it meant to be American on display at expositions and in the ephemera of war. Again, dissent in wartime was something that folks struggled with a great deal. Perhaps one of the most noted advocates and outspoken individuals of the time was a guy by the name of Eugene Debs. Uh, he was a socialist candidate for president, uh, a number of times was a radical public speaker, uh, was a union advocate. He's eventually arrested and goes to prison. Uh, so again, this question of support for the war, you know, lack of support for the war, we still deal today issues of the legacies of protest and what's okay, what's not okay. Certainly Debs somebody who's a reflection of that conversation. Again, those slacker raids that I was mentioning earlier would be an example of this. And again, the, the outright anti-Germanism uh, that existed throughout the United States at this time would be another example of this as well. So once the First World War gets going in the United States, there is a feeling that it is absolutely acceptable uh, to be able to openly discriminate uh, and in some cases violently against anyone of German ancestry uh, during the war, right? So you see sauerkraut turned into being called liberty cabbage. Uh, so I remember uh, in, in 2003 when the Iraq war got going, of course, the, uh, I believe it was the U.S. Congressional Cafeteria turned uh, French fries into freedom fries, right? Sort of this kind of a thing. Uh, you know, you have uh, oppositions against uh, the speaking of the German language. Uh, so I'll give you an example. I grew up in Brookfield, Illinois. It's famous certainly for our zoo, but if you actually read the Brookfield newspaper during World War I, they passed a law that said it was illegal to speak German on the streets of Brookfield. Uh, so yeah, uh, oh yeah. Uh, so that kind of anti-Germanism was common, particularly in areas where you have a lot of first and second generation German immigrants. Uh, you had laws that basically stated whether or not folks of a certain immigration status could live near where certain uh, industrial production was going for the war. Uh, you eventually have an individual who is murdered. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert Prager uh, is a young German-American. Uh, He's murdered in Collinsville, Illinois uh, during this particular time. Uh, so again, that anti-Germanism uh, was, was rife uh, and was accepted uh, by, by many. Uh, but again, what we're talking about is a war effort that melded many of these different components that I mentioned earlier together. Uh, so an example of this was the Committee on Public Information also put out very large expositions where they tried to get local communities to demonstrate how patriotic they were being, how prideful they were in this definition of nationalism at this particular time. So to give you an example of this, I'm sure some of you, maybe one of you, has been to Grant Park in downtown Chicago at some point in your life. That's Grant Park in September of 1918. 
Doesn't look like Grant Park, does it? No, it really doesn't, does it? Right? So these are soldiers from Camp Grant in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, they have been brought in to partake and participate in the American uh, Great War Exposition, which is taking place, again, in the first two weeks of September 1918. So you could go to Grant Park. They ripped up and they built trenches. Here you can see some of that there. That's Grant Park in downtown Chicago for this exposition. Uh, and the idea was, again, to put the aspects of the war on display, right? So we have video games, much more interactive types of media for folks, right? It's 1917, it's 1918. Silent films and Nickelodeons are barely a thing. And so, of course, at this time, uh, being able to go out and see soldiers go up over the top was really something that individuals were inspired by, was really something that individuals wanted to be able to experience. So this kind of communal activism in the support of a war effort, right? A demonstration of how folks are doing that is on display at an exposition, okay? And so there's good and there's bad here, but certainly if you're looking for legacies, the idea of that community activism in the support of World War II, right? Where do you think some of that comes from, right? So part of that you can certainly connect back to role, the role of the state in World War I. So the image that is here is it says French war exhibit, uh, US government war exposition in this photo, but it's captured stuff from the battlefield. So again, each day of an exposition like this was geared around a particular ally. You had folks come in and give speeches, right? So the Canadians, the Belgians, stuff like that. The CPI runs much of this show. They brought in nearly 16 or 17 rail cars worth of stuff to be able to display it. Uh, and again, it's trying to be able to show folks how we are good, how the German Hun is not, uh, and here are ways in which you can partake. So again, there are examples of stuff like within this that we would, of course, hold to be unacceptable uh, and unsavory today, certainly. So for example, right before the United States gets involved in the First World War, we were involved in what was referred to as the punitive expedition to Mexico, uh, where Pershing and others went down in search of Pancho Villa and some of his associates. And so what you ended up having was this view on the part of the YMCA and other organizations that American soldiers were not catered to in the most wholesome way during the punitive expedition. And so what they tried to do at expositions like this is show how with the YMCA, the Knights of Columbus, and any number of other organizations, the Commission on Training Camp Activities would be a good example, how those organizations were able to help change the story. Uh, and so what they did was they built a mock Mexican town uh, where you walked through it uh, to be able to go into a new US Army camp uh, where women from the Salvation Army had donuts and coffee and you could get a meal and you would see sort of what this camp would look like. Now, I'll admit, I have looked and looked and looked. I haven't been able to find a picture of uh, the Mexican town yet. Uh, I'm, I still sort of look for this, uh, but all of the writings of the time sort of write about this and how fascinating it was. And you know, today we would certainly have some trouble with this. But again, you could go hear speakers. Uh, you could go learn about canning, about different things that you could do. Uh, you could also see demonstrations uh, of military weapons. Uh, so this is uh, a, what was called the, the night barrage battle. Uh, so they would also have demonstrations at night. Uh, they had uh, airplanes uh, flying overhead as well during the day uh, to try to get folks interested. So again, 
the issues of, let's say, the 1940s, 50s, 60s, questions over the role of the state, the role of dissent, and what Americans' duty is in time of war are questions that the folks in the First World War endured as well, and is certainly a legacy of a conflict like that. So Illinois had what was called the State Council of Defense. Uh, they put out a number of pamphlets about how Americans were supposed to act during the war. The one there on the left, the title is How to Plan and Hold a Patriotic Meeting. It's kind of an interesting one. Uh, the one there to the right, uh, Loyalty Christmas Candies. So it's all about food conservation and how you can sort of use food conservation uh, to make Christmas candies that are, you know, sort of good for the, uh, the American story. All right, just a couple more points. Uh, point number 10, the war led to the Great Migration and remade urban communities across the United States. It also resulted in the formal immigration process we are still grappling with. So during that sort of decade before the war began, you had what was referred to as the Great Migration, where African Americans came northward into many urban communities, right? So Chicago, uh, New York certainly, Detroit, and others. 1919 was a period in which the relative racial, uh, pardon me, the relative uh, union and economic harmony that had existed during the war, uh, of course, ended, uh, and so you end up seeing a series of race riots. Uh, these are quite violent. Uh, a number of individuals are killed, uh, and they reflect the new racial realities of some of these different communities. So it's a very, very, very difficult time. So there are outlets uh, for African Americans to be able to express some of the displeasure in the conflict here. Certainly the Chicago Defender newspaper would be an example of this, as well as the Pittsburgh Courier. Uh, these were relatively prominent ones. If you're someone who is interested in World War II history uh, and has ever heard about what's called the Double V Campaign uh, for African Americans, Americans during World War II, that was partly coming out of uh, the Pittsburgh Courier. Uh, the, the idea of immigration, so when the war is going on, right, prohibition is something that is also supported partly because there was a real view that if you drank alcohol, particularly beer, that you would be helping those who produced it. And there was this stereotyped assumption that, well, what do the Germans do? drink beer, uh, so we got to stop drinking beer in order to win the war, uh, right? So those sort of stereotyped assumptions about immigrant communities, along with a wide and really ingrained issue over the question of race, led to in the early to mid-1920s support for a series of different immigration restrictions. So, you know, I'm sure that many of you fall into different sides when it comes to modern debates over immigration. But it was around 100 years ago in the aftermath of the First World War when American immigration policy was set down. All right, uh, And what you end up seeing with that uh, is a sort of discussion over whether or not you know, what, what America looks like, right? what the American story, again, uh, should reflect. Uh, so here you see a US soldier uh, deployed during the midst of the race riots uh, that happened in Chicago in 1919. Uh, and again, don't sort of get me wrong, these were of course incredibly brutal things. What had happened was, uh, at least in the case of Chicago, uh, a few young African American teenagers uh, were playing on the beaches of Chicago uh, and they had apparently gone into an area that was supposedly for whites only uh, and some of them were eventually killed uh, basically for this and so then riots uh, sort of are the result. All right. Point number 11, the war destroyed the Ottoman Empire and with it the caliphate. The Ottoman Empire had been around for centuries. Uh, it was referred to, though, by the time you get to the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s as the sick man of Europe, right? There was always this sort of 
crisis or identity crisis over whether or not uh, the Europeans wanted to consider the Ottoman Empire sort of as a part of what they were doing. Uh, you see a lot of reforms in the 1800s in the Ottoman world designed to link it much more to that. Uh, but they back eventually the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, uh, which of course emerges the, uh, the, the defeated uh, side in the course of the First World War. So when this ends, right, their empire is broken up. Uh, much of it is turned over to the mandate system. Uh, but the questions of what to do uh, in the aftermath, we've sort of dealt with, uh, you know, kind of ever since. All right. Point number 12, uh, Western support for modern Israel can be linked directly to England's Balfour Declaration during the war, well before its Declaration of Independence in 1948. So certainly across much of Europe in the late 1800s, right, you have outward support for aspects of Zionism, but you also have this identity over questions of acceptance of individuals uh, who are Jewish. By the time you get into the early 1900s, right, the British Empire issues what's called the Balfour Declaration, uh, you know, mandating a sort of support uh, for the idea of, of, of a Jewish state. And that British support, uh, of course, traces through much of the 20th century, uh, and it leads, again, additionally to American support and the creation of, of Israel as it exists uh, in May uh, of 1948. Now, point number 13, modern international political systems were mainly established by the leading forces following the Second World War. They built upon the system attempted following World War I. So again, the Treaty of Versailles resulted in something called the League of Nations. Now, this was, again, the brainchild of, of Woodrow Wilson, and it was something that was intended uh, to be able to replace many of the alliance systems that had failed prior to the war. Uh, of course, the Americans don't uh, sign off on the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, they don't join the League of Nations because there's a real feeling that we would be giving up some measure of our sovereignty. Uh, and so it becomes very difficult then for the United States in the post-war era. U.S. involvement was viewed as central. And so when the United Nations is created in the aftermath of the Second World War, the United States takes a much more leading role. Uh, the U.N. is based, of course, in New York. Uh, so it's a very strong statement about this. Uh, and you can also carry out that legacy to things like NATO, right? The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right? Again, founded in the aftermath of World War II, uh, right around that time of something called the Marshall Plan, where the United States, again, takes a leading role in this question of the defense of Europe. All right, so certainly here we see uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, right, sort of a key figure with this. All right, final point for us. Uh, point number 14. This ongoing discussion in many ways uh, is a battle for memory, uh, and it's a battle that continues, right, to this day. Um, I had a chance a few years ago uh, to go to Normandy, uh, in France, which was a, a wonderful experience, took a number of students with us. And one of the things that I noticed in one of the small French towns uh, was this particular uh, statue. Now, I grew up in Illinois, uh, I grew up in Brookfield, but I had family that grew up in small farm towns where pretty much in most of those small farm towns, right in the center of town, you got your public park, which has Civil War uh, materials with it, right? Usually a cannon, a couple of uh, cannonballs, right? Maybe a plaque or something like that. And that's great. You know, you go to some communities around the Chicago area, you might see something connected to World War I, but usually what is it? It's stuff connected to World War II, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a howitzer, maybe a little piece of something. That's about it. In France, this particular image, really, again, stood out to me. Because uh, one, the person is wearing, you know, it's, a, it's almost a, a female figure. It looks like they're wearing military clothing. Uh, the face, though, is blown off, right? Uh, and I was told by those at the time, 
that it was blown off during the initial artillery for the landings uh, in World War II uh, for D-Day, for the invasion of Normandy. But they've kept it, and I think it's a really interesting legacy, an interesting sort of statement about the enduring aspect of the war for a few reasons. One certainly is the industrialization of war that hit the world between 1914 and 1918 resulted in a very large amount of ordnance that to this day uh, has yet to be handled, uh, has yet to be dealt with. Uh, so there are areas in places like Belgium and in parts of France uh, where they are sort of left uh, with the assumption being you don't want to go to that space because, again, there would be a lot of unexploded ordnance there. The issue of how to memorialize war, right, is an aspect of this too. I think that's something that we deal with, with things like the American Civil War, right, and the conflicts there, this question of how do we memorialize, right, what's the difference between uh, acknowledgement and glorification, right? Uh, and another aspect of this is, of course, reconciliation, right, because a few decades shortly after the ending of the First World War, you're going to see, of course, the beginning of the Second World War uh, and a conflict with Germany that would not end until 1945. But the ability of those nations to be able to reconcile, to be able to move past and continue to develop relationships is an interesting comment about international diplomacy and, again, how we deal with the legacies of this conflict every day. So, all right. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Okay, we have time for a few questions. I have a microphone so everyone can hear. If you have a question, please raise your hand. Yes, sir. I'm coming. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, oh, oh. What was the slide? It was coupled back about yeah. the treaty that came out of Israel about the Jewish uh, nation. Uh, oh, the Balfour, the Balfour yeah. Declaration. Can we see that? Can I see that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. That and that's um, the image itself is is widely available uh, on the internet, so you would be able to to see it. Uh, this was a statement on the part of uh, British officials in the Foreign Office, basically saying that what they wanted to do was to support uh, basically uh, the idea of a, a state uh, where Jewish individuals would be, you know, sort of would be protected, right? So that's that's kind of the idea. Others? Other questions? What can I answer? Although I've already scared some of you. Uh, what was sort of the initial um, reasoning behind putting up a statue to the uh, Garavelli, the assassin of Franz Ferdinand? What was oh, the oh, uh, Gavrilo Princip. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so part of that has to do with, of course, the reasons why he wanted to uh, assassinate, why he and his associates wanted to assassinate uh, Ferdinand, right? So the Austro-Hungarian world uh, had been uh, dominating a wide variety of different national and ethnic groups for centuries. Uh, and so he's a part of uh, an ultra-Serbian nationalist group that saw themselves as wanting to be able to be independent. Uh, and that very much is a part of that sort of mid 1800s story across a large part of Europe, uh, right? Many different groups defining their own cultural nationalism in different ways. Uh, and so the idea was, again, a sort of demonstration of that Serbian nationalism. Now, part of that also then is reflected by, you know, where does Serbia end up in the Cold War era, right? Uh, and connections to Yugoslavia and this kind of thing. Uh, and so then wanting to be able to make a statement about Serbian nationalism after that. Other questions? Anybody else? Yes, sir.
So I've heard in the past a lot um, from maybe like a few English guys that uh, <laughs> that America's role in World War One was minimal. That it would it was already won by the time we got there. And uh, I always retort with uh, that in the summer of 1918 that the Germans uh, were um, planning a big offensive, and that the Western Front was at a huge stalemate. So then when we got there. Um, you know, the Argonne Offensive in October was mainly sure. Americans. Right. And that uh, we had a very big role in winning the war, even though we were only there for a little over a year. Like, would you agree with that? Y yes and no. Uh, I, I think you're both right uh, to a certain extent. Uh, because the question is, what do you define a role as being? Okay. So, like, for example, right, if we take World War II as a case study of questions of roles, right? So our, the American commitment in terms of boots on the ground in the West versus, let's say, for example, the Soviet commitment of boots on the ground in the East, they put more men into the field there than we do, right? But it's the American economic output to supply the allies with the majority, right, of everything they needed to win the war, right, helps bring the war to a conclusion, right? So. We are very, 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 very integral, right, in a, in, as a leading actor, right? But it's that question of what do we define as the role as being? So if you look at, let's say, 1917 into 1918, the percentage that the American military had of the Western Front, right? So what percentage of it that we were in charge of at any given time? That number never goes above 30%, okay? It never goes above 30%. It doesn't mean that that's not absolutely central in providing a stabilizing effect when those offensives are coming, right? So are we absolutely central to helping bring the war to a conclusion right then? Yes, certainly we are. But we are not the primary reason why the Allies win the war, right? Uh, you know, that would be uh, disingenuous of, of us. That's what, yeah, that's what I always say. I always say, that, like, why can't we just agree that we both, like, we're on the same side? I mean, I think everybody wants to be prideful, right? Everybody wants to be prideful about, about, their, own, about their own nation, about their own history, about their own character, all that stuff. Uh, and so, you know, there's that, that idea of pride and reality, right, uh, you know, when it comes to, to stuff like that. I'm a big Cub fan, but, you know, I always have to realize I, I can't throw a curveball. I'm never going to play for the team, you know, that, that kind of a thing. So, but no, it's a great, it's a great thought, great question. Any others? Okay. All right. How about one more round of applause? Thank oh. you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for coming.